This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out tonight. Uh, my name is Casey Andrews, and I'm just delighted that a group of folks came out for an Irish lit lecture on a cold, yeah, yes, Leonard, of course Leonard's here. Yes, it's a Joyce lecture, come on. You, you take what we get, Joyceans. Um, yeah, uh, I'm glad to have you all out here tonight on a cold night, on a busy time, even at this early point in the year, as we had big events already on campus. And um, I'm just very grateful to see you all and um, to get this time to experience uh, a little chance to be with my friend, Richard Rankin Russell, um, who is an Irish lit scholar who comes to us from Baylor University, where he directs the English graduate program and also the Beale Poetry Festival. So he connects with poets um, from our current scene all over the world and has that pedigree. Um, I, I first encountered Richard's writing um, in 2007. I was working on um, what ended up being my first published article on the playwright Martin McDonough, and I um, grabbed Martin McDonough, a casebook edited by Richard Rankin Russell, and I thought I'd pull out some greatest hits of old-timey Richard writing. Um, because um, this piece, uh, it, it begins, it has a general editor's note to the series, and um, McDonough at the time was a rising superstar of Irish, uh, of Irish plays, and has continued to be really major, made films like In Bruges and a, a couple of other things. Um, but, uh, so this guy who's a rising star playwright, um, this editor says, appropriately, this volume is edited by Richard Rankin Russell, an associate professor at Baylor University, who is quickly becoming a major scholar of Irish studies. <laughs> <laughs> which is a kind of a condescending way to include something in an editor's head note, but um, I will just note that, so in 2007, this book came out, and um, since that time, uh, if you check out Richard's um, more recent books, they demurely say in his bio, um, Richard Russell has edited or authored a number of books. Um, he's basically on a pace of at least one academic book a year, which in our, come on, Richard, 10 in 10 years counts as one a year. Um, so... Uh, that what we call this in our field is very prolific. So um, doing that and writing articles, and um, and there's this this incredible sense to to Richard's abilities. His most his recent books on Seamus Heaney, such as Seamus Heaney's Regions, and his book Poetry and Peace on Longley and Heaney, um, are just really field defining works these days. If you want to write about Heaney, you basically have to go through Richard and deal with what he has said about Heaney and grapple with his insights. Um, and and this is something that um, certain kinds of scholars would wear very proudly and you couldn't um, talk to them because they're so far above you in their knowledge of someone like Heaney. Richard, though, stands out as being someone who is known for his generosity. Um, so I, I read Richard um, 10 years ago. I, I first, uh, I first met Richard five years ago. In 2012, I was part of a um, group of faculty from the United States who went to the Corey Mila Center in Ballycastle, Northern Ireland, which is a peace and reconciliation center founded by Christians that are working on how to end and fix problems that created in the conflict in Northern Ireland. And Richard was just a participant, as I was, and he wore that as just any other participant, despite the fact they had this incredible knowledge and pedigree. And there in that space, um, I got to know him quite well, living together for these several weeks, and we traveled down to Dublin together and saw plays, and we talked about, of course, our shared loves of various writers, but, but we also um, got to talk about our families and Skype together and get a little choked up missing our children. And, um, and so having this kind of incredible experience. 
Um, after that, I, I got to run into Richard at the American Conference for Irish Studies, the big conference in our field. And another just incredible marker of his generosity was after his talk, there was this line of people um, waiting to see him. And it was gray-haired senior scholars and also graduate students. And he was giving equal time to all of those people, just welcoming them in. And uh, I, I just think that's a real testament to Richard's openness. One other um, dimension of that is uh, that many of the living writers that he works on, he has met and known, and I got to meet Michael Longley and have tea with him because Richard invited him up to Corey Mila and Michael said, sure. And so having these opportunities, um, there's sometimes is a division between scholars and the creative writers. And I think because sometimes rightly, they perceive us as parasites on their work. Um, and, uh, and there's something uh, I think about Richard's personality that he's so generous that um, people like Heaney and Longley want to spend time with Richard and want to be with him and, and engage him as an intellectual peer. And I, I just feel grateful for that. Um, so the writer that, uh, that Richard will be talking about today is um, one who um, died too early for Richard to meet him, died in 1941. Um, but I like to think that James Joyce, despite his prickly exterior in many ways, would still have been one over by Richard's generosity, would still have welcomed him in. Um, and so with that, I would just like to uh, thank Richard for bringing his generosity to us, and I'd like you to give a, him a generous welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. That was very generous yourself. Goodness me. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, we had some memorable times in Northern Ireland that summer including trying to find where this bus left. We were talking about that earlier today. I never have been able to read a bus schedule, and you couldn't either. <laughs> but it worked out, thankfully. I'm so happy to be here. I, um, my talk is really on hospitality, and I just really wanted to thank Casey, other members of the, the English department here at Whitworth, uh, Bert and Tom and uh, Kari and, and Daniel, with whom I've reconnected via Memories of Little Rock, uh, and, and Leonard and, and uh Fred and, and others, and so thank you so much for having me here. It really is almost like coming to a different country, coming from Central Texas here. A lot of a lot of differences. Uh, one of the huge differences is the temperature. I told my wife today it was 48. She said, "But it's 96 here." <laughs> and then she hung up. No, uh, <laughs> but uh, a very warm welcome. And so I really, really appreciate uh, Casey and, and Leaves' generosity. And uh, you have a lovely place and. Um, can feel the warmth here despite the cold weather, which I love. So um, I don't know, y'all, if I would call myself a, a, a Joycean. I, I studied under a Joycean, and I, I'm still loath to use that word. But um, I started thinking about Joyce again a few years ago. I, I, I didn't feel confident enough to write a dissertation on Joyce. I worked with a major Joyce scholar, and so I did something fairly different. Michael Longley, Seamus Heaney, some people from the Belfast group in the, the 60s in, in Northern Ireland. But a few years ago, I just thought of the old mantra, you know, write what you know. And I started thinking about Northern Ireland and sectarianism and, and Joyce. And so I think I have a, a project uh, on Joyce and Protestantism. Uh, that's what I'm going to talk about tonight, specifically the Good Samaritan parable. And so even if you don't know Joyce, hopefully you'll know the parable. Um, maybe you'll uh, know some more about Ulysses if you don't know that novel tonight. Um, so... Um, I will stop after 45 minutes, and so if I haven't, just get a cane or something and pull me off. Uh, but I'd love to take questions. Um, I learned a lot. This summer, I gave a version of this paper at the, the Dublin James Joyce Summer School, and so I'm always trying to, to learn more. 
On the 24th of July, 2010, the Irish Independent ran a story that might have been startling for those familiar with the origins of James Joyce's Ulysses. Somewhat breathlessly, the paper security editor, Tom Brady, reported, this is a long quote, a man was in guard of custody, that's uh, police, Irish police, a man was in guard of custody last night after a father-to-be was stabbed to death when he attempted to break up a row. That's a fight. Good Samaritan, James Joyce, age 20, was struck several times in the upper body with a domestic knife. You can't make this up. And so this was, I found this after I'd, I'd written this paper and I thought I've got to put this in here. This is my catchy opening, right? So the writer James Joyce was allegedly involved in a fight um, and rescued some 106 years before this incident. Uh, he was rescued supposedly by a good Samaritan or so the story goes. The truth is much more complicated in understanding this likely apocryphal incident and its effect on Joyce and his epic reveals a writer in a novel indebted to this specific parable, the Good Samaritan parable, and to the Protestant emphasis on scripture generally. So the book project looks at varieties of Protestantism. Uh, a chapter I've already published has to do with Joyce's sort of reactions to North of Ireland Protestantism and politics and Dubliners. And I, I guess I've gotten sort of obsessed with this, this parable. Uh, seems like a good parable for our age, the Good Samaritan parable. So uh, the question of what it means to be a neighbor, a good neighbor even, colors much of Ulysses and became increasingly important to the peripatetic Joyce while in exile from Ireland. Already in 1906, while living in Rome, he regretted not reproducing in the Dubliner stories he had written before the dead, the hospitality of Dublin and Ireland, which he claimed in a letter of September 25th, 1906, to his unfortunately named brother, Stanislaus, he said this hospitality does not exist elsewhere in Europe. So Joyce did, when he got a little distance from Ireland, learn to really appreciate hospitality. And those of you who know The Dead, which is still supposedly the greatest short story in English, I'd like to think it is, you can really feel that hospitality coming through there. So a lot of this is, in my mind, a, a way in which he continued that theme in Ulysses, especially through this parable. For those of you who don't know the, the plot of the novel, the two central characters, Stephen Dedalus, whom you first meet in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and Leopold Bloom, an Irish Jew, uh, they're often rebuffed by their neighbors, but they gradually drift towards each other. And there's a lot of Hamlet and father correspondences. There's a father and son connection. Um, the central long plan for our event in the novel occurs with their meeting at the end of the Oxen of the Sun episode. If you haven't Red Ulysses, that would be a fun place to start. It's uh, a sort of gallop through the English language, lots of parodies of different styles. Um, they meet at the end of that episode in a maternity hospital, uh, and then uh, their meeting continues through Circe, uh, Eumaeus, and Ithaca. And I'm gonna really bear down on the, the, the Eumaeus episode tonight. Uh, Bloom, uh, after Stephen is in a fight, tries to be neighborly to Stephen, fatherly even, and his actions here and earlier in encounters with others in the novel are depicted as reenactments of the Good Samaritan parable, perhaps Jesus' most famous story of this kind in scripture. So um, I still am not sure I want to claim that I've discovered something in Ulysses that hasn't been discovered so far, but I have found when I, I taught it again last fall and, you know, we started talking about the Good Samaritan parable and I said, well, of course, I'm sure this angle has been done to death in Joyce. And I started looking as you do in the research, MLA bibliography, very little actually. Um, and so I just thought, well, this is sort of odd and it's a sentence that starts one of the last episodes and this was the inspiration for the novel. I'll be talking about that soon. So why has this not been talked about more? And so I thought maybe I could do something here. Um, I guess y'all, I, I thought 
maybe this is a small sort of contribution to reading the novel through as a sort of wisdom literature. And, and Declan Kybird uh, has done a wonderful book, Ulysses and Us, with different chapters like on walking and eating in Ulysses. Uh, and Kybird really sees this thoroughly as kind of modern day wisdom literature. And so, uh, by the way, if, if you're interested, the, the British and Irish edition has the famous shot of Marilyn Monroe on the cover reading. And she really you know, was reading Ulysses. So um, this is sort of my, I guess, entry is reading the novel as wisdom literature. And I want to suggest tonight how Joyce's early turn towards scripture and then later to scriptural narratives, especially the Lucan narrative, um, and his parables of the humanized Jesus is an inherently Protestant turn that indelibly marked his great epic Ulysses. And all this may sound sort of strange, and it still does to my ears. So we're talking about a thoroughly Irish Catholic writer in every way. But interestingly enough, uh, he turned to the Protestant church or to Protestantism and to scripture to rebel. Um, as he stated in a letter to Nora, uh, in 19, this is the lady he eventually married, um, August 29th, 1904, about Catholicism. I made secret war upon it when I was a student, very dramatic, right? And declined to accept the position it offered me. Now I make open war upon it by what I write and say and do. Roy Gottfried has argued in his compelling study, Joyce's misbelief about Joyce's transcription of the book of Revelation when he was 16 years old as a college student. And this is a quote now from Gottfried. To appeal to the Bible at all at this time was a striking move for a Catholic indoctrinated in obedience to the clergy and its intercessory power to inform and lead, to seek and to derive authority by reading and citing directly from scripture rather than receiving it from ecclesiastical authorities is a striking move of independent agency and individual choice. So this was, Joyce really saw himself as a rebel. This is one way he rebelled, copying out Revelation when he's 16. Go figure. So uh, that also got me thinking, you know, how well does he know scripture? And there's, there's not been as much done on that as I thought there had been. Uh, I did find when I got into Eumaeus, uh, the 16th episode of the novel, it's the most understudied episode of the novel. And it's been sort of plagued by what a lot of people see as its really poor style. And Joyce wrote in a variety of styles, as some of you know, as the novel proceeds after what he called the initial style. Um, this is the sentence that really sparked my entrance, uh, interest. Preparatory to anything else, Mr. Bloom brushed off the greater bulk of the shavings, this is helping Stephen Dedalus up after his fight, and handed Stephen the hat and ash plant and bucked him up generally in orthodox Samaritan fashion, which he very badly needed. Now, and I've had to do some genetic detective work. Um, this is not my specialty. Joyce was going blind later in his life. He's writing in crayon. He's writing in blue pencil, red pencil, green pencil. Um, it's, so it's, we're still not completely sure when he you know, wrote every little passage. But we do know that he did have good Samaritan in this passage until about two to three weeks before the novel was published. He wanted to publish the novel on his birthday, on his 40th birthday, February the 2nd, Groundhog Day, 1922, and he substituted um, orthodox for good two to three weeks before it was published. So that was, that was a real revelation. I thought, oh, this blows my theory. No, it's, maybe it's typical Joyce trying to cover his tracks a bit. Uh, and I can talk more about that later. There is, there is some evidence, and I, I can't say that Leopold Bloom is, is a mason, but there's, and I didn't know anything about masonry before this either. Um, there's some evidence he might be uh, part of a sort of a subset of masonry that was uh, associated with the Good Samaritan. So anyway, Joyce changes this phrase, changes it to orthodox, and that seems to have misled a lot of people. Um, a, a number of people have said, 
what is this phrase doing here? And they're just, they seem confused about it. Um, for example, uh, Gifford and Seidman, who've done a book of annotations in Ulysses, point out that the adjective orthodox refers in the passage from Luke, which I'll read shortly, referred originally to those who passed by the injured man, and thus they imply Bloom is an orthodox Jew as well. This is what they say. The parable, quote, tells of a Samaritan who was willing to help a severely injured man whom the Orthodox Jews, a certain priest and a Levite, passed by and neglected. But Leopold Bloom is nothing like an Orthodox Jew in the novel. When you first meet him, he's, he's eating slices of kidney. <laughs> and, you know, he's not keeping kosher in, in a skillet. And so that was just a, a strange reading to me. Uh, it's also clear that his father converted to Protestantism and then Bloom himself converted to Catholicism for his wife. Uh, there are other readings, I, I won't go into all of them here, uh, but suffice it to say that I just thought, well, maybe I have something to, to chew on and to wrestle with here. Um, what I think that means here when he helps Stephen up in orthodox Samaritan fashion is exactly what it says. Uh, it's orthodox by virtue of being unorthodox behavior, right? Um, that uh, he was even a secularized figure in, in the parable as we'll talk about. Richard Elman, Joyce's great biographer, does cite this opening sentence as part of his claim that Bloom's unassuming decency begins and ends Eumaeus, but is withered a little by the style. And the style is often described as exhausted and cliched and enervated, and it is that. But he does go on to say this. Um, he's, not, he, he's not fully sure of why it says Orthodox Samaritan fashion, but he says this. Since the Samaritans were conspicuously outside Orthodoxy, that being important to Christ's meaning, Orthodox Samaritan fashion is not only a cliche, but an absurdity. But then he says this, the use of the word Samaritan nonetheless points up the parabolic quality of Bloom's act. So I started thinking more and more, is this a one-time event in the novel? And then I sort of realized, no, Bloom in some ways is kind of rehearsing this behavior all day long. He helps a blind stripling across the street, and then he thinks, oh, what would it feel like if you were blind? And he sticks his hand inside his shirt and fills his belly. Maybe, you know, he's just, he's sympathetic to his cat, you know, when you first meet him. What, what does the cat sound like? What would I sound like? So... My, my sense is, and again, um, you, you may see it differently, uh, um, but my sense is that Bloom has been practicing for this role uh, for some time. Um, at the same time, I think the parable is sort of polyvalent in the sense that I think Bloom at times functions as the stranger who is beaten. Uh, he is attacked verbally. Daniel's done a paper on the, the Cyclops and violence, right? He has a biscuit tin thrown at him. Um, almost physically. So in some ways, Bloom plays that role during the day, but then in other ways, by the end of the day, he steps into the role of rescuer. So those are the things I'm going to think about with you. Um, Bloom is attacked vicariously by members of other tribes, if you like, including by the Protestant Mr. DC, who sort of proleptically voices this very vicious anti-Semitic series of remarks to Stephen in an early episode called Nestor. And then he's attacked directly by a series of Catholics, so then I started thinking, well, these are sort of the two tribes, right, in a way that he's uh, been attacked by. Um, and then I want to think at the end of my talk, there's all this hope that Stephen and Bloom are somehow going to connect, and it just sort of fizzles. And so I want to think about why reading the novel through this parable at the end, how that helps us make sense of that. In some sense, at the end, I think we're meant as readers to play the role of rescuer and to come in and sort of be interlocutors with Bloom. Um, and so I, I'll, I'll talk about that as well. What would it mean for Ulysses Studies to advance a, a parabolic reading of the novel? First of all, it, it should in, lead inevitably to some qualified revision of 
uh, my advisor, Weldon Thornton's assertion that Joyce simply does not value narrative enough to protect it over against his other interests and agendas and Ulysses. And I, I respect so much what Weldon's done with his illusions book and everything else in Joyce studies. I can't hold a candle to what he's done, but I've started to realize that he valued narrative so much um, that he started turning to parables, especially this one. You could do a lot with the prodigal son parable as well in the novel. There's definite references to that. But he finally turned to the parables to achieve his narrative goals, which were inherently ethical. Now, then I started looking for people who have done parabolic readings of Joyce in general. They're very, very few, which is, which is odd. In, in fact, most people who talk about that talk about Stephen's parable of the plums, you know, or fairly early in the novel in the Eolus section. And it's, it's sort of a joke, really. It, it doesn't seem to have a strong ethical import. Uh, a couple of critics who have talked briefly about parables in Joyce, Vicki Mahaffey and Jill Shishtadi, argue this. As a narrative unit, parable is distinctly unsatisfactory. So remember that unsatisfactory feeling you get at the end of the novel when Bloom and Stephen's relationship sort of fizzles out, and that sort of helped me with that. It leaves the reader with a crux, they say, a narrative dilemma without a solution to be found directly within the parable itself. So I think reading Ulysses as, as parabolic or parabolically might help us think through a variety of intertwined issues, many of which I don't have time to get to tonight. Uh, the inspiration of the novel, I'm going to kind of drop anchor on that soon and think, talk about that with you. The structuring of the novel, its importance for their relationship. And finally, and this is the part I've gotten pretty excited about, I can't talk about tonight, I don't have time. Joyce is thinking about two sort of outsider tribes, Protestants from the north of Ireland and Jews, two so-called chosen tribes who were much on his mind at the time. So what I want to spend the next few minutes talking about is the, the actual inspiration for the novel, Many people still think, first of all, Joyce was in a fight and he was rescued by a Jewish man named Alfred H. Hunter, who became the inspiration for Leopold Bloom. There was an actual person named Alfred H. Hunter. He was not Jewish, as it turns out. He was a Presbyterian from outside Belfast. Uh, and when I discovered this, I thought, wow, this is, this is sort of amazing. Now, Richard Elman, again, one of the top Joyce scholars ever, the biographer of Joyce, Elman himself, as I found out, has changed a story on this. A lot of this is from a critic called Terence Colleen in, in, in Dublin, who's sort of gone through and surveyed what Elman said over the years about Alfred H. Hunter, the supposed rescuer. Again, I, we cannot prove that Joyce was ever in a fight and rescued by this man, but the man did exist. I'm thinking it's a true fiction. It helped inspire the novel. This is what Elman says. In the 1959 edition of his biography, uh, he doesn't mention the story at all, then he does the first, an introduction to the first paperback Penguin edition of the novel in 68, and he says it's true. So he doesn't mention it in 59, says it's true in that paperback edition. Then in the revised, now standard 1982 edition, he says this. If Dublin report, <laughs> always difficult, can be trusted, Joyce was said to have been dusted off, notice the passive tense, and taken home by a man named Alfred H. Hunter. But there's a lot of evidence that this just didn't happen, right? doesn't matter, it's, it's essentially a, a true fiction. Uh, bizarrely, Joyce is still fascinated by Hunter as late as 1921, the year before the novel comes out. He writes his Aunt Josephine uh, about him, saying, do you have any more information on Hunter? She's probably thinking, who? Right, so he's still obsessed with him in 1921. Uh, we know, or we think, probably, when he goes back to open the first cinema, that's your Joyce trivia for the night. The first cinema in Ireland in 1909. 
that he probably made inquiries about him, probably in 1912. So he's sort of canvassing, uh, Bloom was an ad canvasser, he's canvassing public opinion, trying to find out more about this guy. Um, and I don't have time to go through his whole genealogy, but it's interesting that Hunter starts out Presbyterian, he marries a Catholic woman, um, they eventually end up Unitarian. <laughs> so there are all these changes that they go through. Um, but then, uh, this summer in Dublin, uh, there was a friend who's an expert on Joyce and, and the classics, and she said, well, you know, all of Ulysses, the, the pagan epic, is about the, the pagan uh, concept of hospitality, Xenia. I said, of course I knew that. And so I thought, started thinking some more and felt foolish and ignorant again. And so I'm, I'm really, more than ever, I'm convinced so much of the novel is a study of hospitality. It, it does lots of other things as well. So... I want to think the, about the specific resonances of this inner text uh, uh, of the Good Samaritan parable with you a little bit now. Um, but I also want to think about how parables are inherently dialogical, right? So the way in which Christ taught the New Testament parables, if you've read any of them, I assume you have, um, they're not necessarily didactic. Um, it's actually much more of an ethical tradition that's participatory, it's dialogic. This is one reason I kind of bring in the reader at the end of this paper. So I just kind of wanted to plant that idea in your head about parables being dialogic. Again, not fully satisfactory. So when you get to the end of the novel, there may be some reasons for that. So here's the events, uh, or a few of the events of the Good Samaritan parable that his main characters, Joyce, begin reenacting at the end of the Circe episode. This is the 15th episode in the novel, when Private Carr attacks Stephen. These are almost stage directions. It's written in the style of an expressionist play. He rushes towards Stephen, fist outstretched, and strikes him in the face. Stephen totters, collapses, falls, stunned. He lies prone, his face to the sky, his hat rolling to the wall. Bloom follows and picks it up. Already we can see Joyce reconfiguring Christ's parable. Instead of two travelers who decide not to stop and help the Samaritan, Joyce is good Samaritan Bloom who has been rejected earlier in the day by those two people groups, Catholics and Protestants, he instantly stoops to help him, fully assuming the role of the Good Samaritan, a role he's enacted throughout the day, even as he himself has been attacked as a sort of stranger. I think Bloom's nearly automatic response results from what we might call a habitus of generosity and help that Joyce portrays throughout the novel. So again, think of his sympathetic reaction to the cat, uh, to the blind stripling, he, he's, there's a woman named Mina Purefoy who's in labor, and Bloom somehow feels her labor pains. <laughs> you know, it's like the most sympathetic guy ever, right? Uh, empathetic, even. And he also has this really strong desire to be neighborly that he displays even to his enemies. And we, I think more and more that, that Joyce probably got this from Luke. Um, there, there are lots of things, and some of you would be better, I'm not a theologian at all, but you would know Luke better than I, but one of the things we know about Luke is that it really emphasizes the common humanity of Christ, and that was something that really appealed to Joyce a lot. So when Joyce, uh, sorry, when Bloom hears Stephen sing snatches of Yeats' poem about Fergus that he sang for his dying mother, Bloom thinks this, poetry, well-educated, pity. And then he quickly bends and undoes the buttons of Stephen's waistcoat thinking this, to breathe. And then he brushes the wood shavings from Stephen's clothes with light handed fingers. Bloom then recalls the money uh, that he held for Stephen, one pound seven, and then he now tries to feel it on Stephen's body and he thinks, oh, not hurt anyhow. So in a stroke, the always practical Bloom has ascertained that unlike the Good Samaritan, Stephen hasn't been robbed and more important, he has no broken bones. Again, I think this is from a, a habitus of generosity, a habitus of helping other people. Um, 
in the, uh, the Samaritan parable, as soon as he sees the wounded man, this is from Luke 10, 33 through 4, quote, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, maybe don't try that nowadays, right, <laughs> and set him on his own beast and brought him to an end and took care of him. Now, Bloom, as some of you know, takes Stephen to a cabman's shelter. They have coffee and a roll. It's not quite the same, but clearly he's, he's paralleling a lot of this. But if you notice the parataxic, the parataxis in Luke's sentence, and this, and this, and this, it suggests, I think, not only the rapid fire actions of mercy performed by the Samaritan, but also shows how his compassion was not passive, but led quickly and ineluctably to these sequential acts of kindness. Bloom's theory uh, of mankind generally, uh, which he says to the citizen in Cyclops, and then recounts to Stephen, is expressed clearly in this uh, passage about the citizen, a very violent nationalist. He took umbrage at something or other, that much injured but on the whole even-tempered person declared, I let slip. He called me a Jew in a heated fashion offensively. So I, without deviating from plain facts, at least told him his God, I mean Christ, was a Jew too. And all his family liked me, though in reality I'm not. <laughs> that was one for him. A soft answer turns away wrath. Now, in January 1905, Joyce ordered a very highly popular biography by Ernst Renault, The Life of Jesus, first published in 1863. It goes through lots of editions. And by the end of February 1905, he writes Stanislaus, I have read Renault's Life of Jesus. It's a model of good writing in many ways. The temper is delightful. But what Renan, this theologian, sort of a popular theologian, emphasizes over and over again is Jesus' emphasis on faith that proceeds from the heart, not from outward observances or mere religious rules, which is a lot of what's going on in the Good Samaritan parable. And I was tickled to death to find in Renan a whole discussion of the Good Samaritan parable. So that, I think, was very appealing to Joyce, especially having grown up in a very authoritarian sort of church with a lot of rules. Um, for instance, Renan op opens his 14th chapter, Intercourse of Jesus with the Pagans and Samaritans, with this statement, Jesus despised all religion which was not of the heart. He then continues, the love of God, charity, and mutual forgiveness were his whole law. Sounds a lot like Bloom, right? This is what Bloom adds a little bit later in this episode, you may ask, after his recounting his episode with the citizen. But with a little goodwill all around, it's all very fine to boost, boast of mutual superiority, but what about mutual equality? I resent violence and intolerance in any shape or form. It never reaches anything or stops anything. It's a patent absurdity on the face of it to hate people because they live around the corner and speak another vernacular in the next house, so to speak. Now, this is Bloom's very down-to-earth sort of informal way of talking, but it's, it's a pretty good theology, right? We have a, your new book on pacifism and, and, and the wars in between that period really demonstrates this. And so I, I just can't help but think Joyce is sort of steeping himself in this theology at the time, when he's first creating Bloom. Um, and I'll move on uh, to, to think about, just very briefly, the style. Again, many critics have, have rejected this whole episode almost outright because it's late at night. Stephen and Bloom are very tired. Uh, the, it's full of cliches. It seems exhausted. But in fact, there's some evidence in there that we can probably trust that Joyce, who was a major pacifist, stands behind what Bloom is saying, right? So... Uh, Frank Budgen, a very early commentator on the novel, says this. If there are pages of Ulysses of a more dazzling virtuosity than those of Eumaeus, this episode, there are certainly none with more insight or tenderness. And he says this as well. The effect of the slow-moving stream of familiar words is comic. Till we see emerging out of the dull, colored material, 
a delicate and intimate picture of the relations of a fatherly man to a young man who is a wayward son. So I think a lot of times that does get kind of lost a little bit in the, the technique, as Joyce calls it. The Good Samaritan parable, as you know, centrally takes up the question of how we respond charitably and mercifully to our enemies and expresses well Bloom's philosophy. He articulates to the drunken and exhausted Stephen here. Christ's iteration of this parable, as you also probably know, is provoked by a lawyer who was just asking him, it's a trap question, right? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus tells him the story. I use the King James Bible here because Joyce himself often did. Uh, we know that his library in Trieste had an 1825 copy of the King James Bible, along with the Vulgate and a copy in Italian. Christ famously replies to the lawyer, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and all thy strength, and your neighbor is yourself. And the lawyer, we're told, wants to justify himself. So he asks, who is my neighbor, right? Bloom wonders aloud, who is my neighbor? In an earlier chapter, Lotus Eaters, when he enters the Catholic Church as a sort of tourist. So Bloom is thinking this early in the novel. Uh, it's, it's hard to say Bloom himself consciously reenacts this all day, but at least at that moment early in the novel, he's aware of it. He shows some scriptural awareness about this parable. As you know, as I've already mentioned, Christ tells the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? He's helped by a member of a tribe not his own. What's striking to me when I was sort of putting this together and thinking about it is that Christ tells this parable right after he's been very ill-received by the Samaritans. <laughs> In fact, they've been very abusive to Christ. And so then he turns around and tells a parable with a Samaritan as the figure of mercy. None of us, I don't think, I'm not capable of doing that, right? So that's, that's very striking. After Christ asks him which of the three men was a neighbor to a man, the lawyer has to say, he that shewed mercy to him. The Jewish lawyer is chastened mainly because Jews thought Samaritans unclean. A popular contemporary saying that Joyce knew held that, quote, a piece of Samaritan bread is the flesh of swine. Right? So this is from a rabbinical commentary that's, that's quoted in Ernst Renan's Life of Jesus. Late in this episode, I've always been puzzled when Stephen reacts to Bloom's getting on his companion's right to protect Bloom's thinking about Stephen's Achilles tendon. It's kind of weird. To protect his tender Achilles in stating, lean on me, taking his arm is inexplicable at first. And this is Stephen's reaction. I really think that it kind of parallels the contemporary Jewish reaction in Jesus' time to Samaritans. Stephen thought he felt a strange kind of a flesh of a different man approach him sinuous and wobbly and all that. So I think it may echo this terrible, you know, misapprehension that Samaritans were unclean or something like that. So a lot of this is echoing in the background there. Um, the Samaritans were never thought of as orthodox, which again, I think is why Joyce wants to really stir the pot and say, no, this is the orthodox way uh, to act. So I'm just looking at my time there. Okay. Uh, Renan's description in the life of Jesus of the physical revulsion the Samaritans occasioned in more dominant and orthodox Jewish sects at the time, and Jesus' interest in and care for this despised people group likely appealed to Joyce as he meditated on the character of Bloom, especially in comparing him to the Good Samaritan. Um, Renan, again, this life of Jesus that Joyce read and knew well, says this, this poor sect was treated with extreme harshness. They placed them in the same rank as pagans, but hated them more. Jesus, from a feeling of opposition, was well disposed towards Samaria and often preferred the Samaritans to the Orthodox Jews. There's that word Orthodox. I can't prove that Joyce 
took that word from this, but it's, it's striking given the sentence that opens Eumaeus that I read to you earlier, right? Preparatory to anything else, Mr. Bloom brushed off the greater bulk of the shavings and handed Stephen the hat and the ash plate and bucked him up generally in orthodox Samaritan fashion, which he very badly needed. So the crucial phrase here, uh, perhaps echoing but reversing Renan's phrase, in his implication that the Samaritan's ortho unorthodox beliefs clash with those of the orthodox Jews is in orthodox Samaritan fashion. Um, and Renan goes on and on about the Good Samaritan parable. If you read this life that Joyce was reading in 1905, saying, first, one of his most beautiful parables was that of the man wounded on the way to Jericho. And then after summarizing, Renan argues this. Jesus argues that from the same, this true brotherhood, uh, that it's established among men by charity and not by creeds. The neighbor who in Judaism was especially the co-religionist was in his estimation the man who has pity on his kind without distinction of sect. Human brotherhood in its widest sense overflows in all of his teaching. And there's a way in which this secular Jew, Leopold Bloom, has this sort of overflowing sense of brotherhood and generosity, I think, a lot. Joyce employs this parable finally because he emphasizes love so much. One of the great themes of literature, right? So love for Bloom and Molly is, is badly off as their relationship is. They do reunite at the end uh, in a way. And we too realize that the Good Samaritan parable illustrates, so at least some of you know the novel too well. <laughs> Once we realize that the Good Samaritan parable illustrates Bloom's actions earlier in the novel and in the moving scenes with Stephen at the end of Circe and throughout Eumaeus and the next episode, Ithaca, we realize that his desire to rescue and tend to the beaten stranger uh, is Stephen Dedalus. And, and, and Bloom does just that. He has a great compassion on him. Interestingly, and you may know this as well, the Good Samaritan parable is often thought typologically to refer to the coming of Christ, but Bloom is a thoroughly, he's a Christ figure, he's a thoroughly secularized figure. Um, Robert Funk, uh, memorably named Funk, uh, has argued that Jesus actually chose the Samaritan as the protagonist of the parable because, this is a long quote from Funk, the Samaritan is the one whom the victim does not, could not expect would help, indeed does not want his help, the Samaritan is a secular figure. He functions not as an esoteric cipher for a religious factor, but in his concrete everyday significance. Now, Joyce, as you may or may not know, if you've read Dubliners, it's all about quotidian everyday experience. And Joyce continues this theme in Ulysses. Um, I think he would have been drawn to a narrative. I'm pretty sure he was drawn to a narrative with such a secular figure who's so common, who's so ordinary. Uh, crucially, Funk also points out that the Samaritan's help is not wanted by the victim. This is really important. I think, it's certainly I, I'll speak for myself, you'd like to think that the person you're helping wants your help. He doesn't. He doesn't, <laughs> right? But he offers it anyway, the Samaritan does, a crucial factor, both for understanding Stephen Dedalus's general lack of receptivity to Bloom. He finally says, after Bloom has all these theories about politics and the country, he's like, we can't change the country, let's change the subject. So I don't think it finally matters that Stephen's not receptive to Bloom, and that too goes along with the, with the, uh, the parable. Uh, interestingly, Stephen himself, even though he seems to reject Bloom, sort of rescues another character named Corley, a guy who's also homeless. Stephen's been homeless all day. He's been kicked out of his little tower that he's living in. He gives up the key. And Stephen actually gives half a pound or half a crown, actually, to this man named Corley. Uh, Virginia Mosley, one of the few commentators to engage with the parable, uh, makes a lot of parallels between Bloom and the Samaritan. And she really points out this connection to Stephen and Corley. 
she argues that Stephen himself is becoming more and more like his Orthodox Samaritan by the end of the chapter. So that's kind of fun to think about. I think there's a growing charity, as she says, evidenced by his lending Corley a half a pound. Uh, but many critics tend to believe that not only that Bloom's and Stephen's relationship bears no fruit, but they also go on, they go along with, excuse me, Joyce's off-stated, uh, cited statement to Frank Budgen that Stephen no longer interests me. He has a shape that can't be changed. And, you know, trust the author, yes, but it seems like Stephen is changing here. Uh, there been, there's been a long, recent, wonderful study by Luca Crispio on Bloom's character and his genealogy. And I think some people, certainly I was put off by this statement, oh, well, Stephen's character is fixed. I think we see it changing in front of our eyes. And one of the ways I, I'm arguing, which it does change, is precipitated by his likely unconscious uh, iteration of the Good Samaritan parable when he gives his friend, who's also homeless, a half a pound. Uh, finally, and I'll be done in about five minutes or so, I think, uh, reading this scene through the intertext of the Good Samaritan parable with its emphasis on the need for the hearer to respond, we ourselves are expected to respond in some ways. We become interlocutors with Bloom, with Stephen, with this parable. As Derek Attridge describes the interaction of the reader with the literary work generally, what we experience in responding to the artwork is not a generalized obligation, but a call coming from the work itself. And think about all the, your favorite books that you like to read. Um, it's, not the it's not the general some sort of call that the novel has to you. It's a specific story. It's a specific hold that it has on you. The work is a singular staging of otherness, Attridge goes on to say. Parabolic literature specifically calls for even more of a response to this singular staging of otherness. That is, even if Stephen is largely silent in rebuffs bloom, we can't fail to be silent as the long-awaited for communion between father and son, stranger and Samaritan, transpires in what Attridge would term the event of literature. He has this whole theory about how literature is a sort of event that's reenacted every time we open the pages of a novel, which makes a lot of sense to me. I think we also find ourselves in the position of substituting for Stephen, listening raptly to Bloom, sympathizing with him, trying to feel his pain. Put another way, we the readers finally become Bloom's neighbor, drawn ineluctably to a sense of abandonment first by citizens of Dublin, then by Stephen. This is the guy he set out to rescue, and he seems to reject him. We become, in some ways, Bloom's good Samaritan, wanting to help him out of the ditch of his embarrassment, desiring to even figuratively dust him off from his rough encounters with others throughout the day. So the unexpectedness of the new role that's th suddenly thrust upon us here at the end of the novel is nothing if not parabolic. And one of the sort of the tenets of parables I started with was their dialogic, right? Eric Gregory and Leah Hunt Hendricks put it this way, the parable offers a different notion of time and of our participation in the unfolding of time. In the parable, God's time breaks into the present. Here, it's not so much God's time but something like, I think, the intertextual time purchased by the parable, it erupts into the present in the novel. It leads us back to the gospel narrative and then forward to Stephen and Bloom's relationship and finally forward to maybe imagining our role in that relationship. Um, my advisor, I remember, was told me one time a student had been talking to him about Stephen Dedalus. He said, you talk about him as if he were real. And he said, well, he is. <laughs> right? So th there's a way in which you get to know these characters and they do seem so real, right? So... The significance in the gospel narrative of the victim of the robbery's lack of identity now becomes clear. And I'm arguing uh, now, and I had no idea how much scholarship had been done on parables until I got into the Baylor Library and found all this, but it's amazing. 
I think in part, Joyce was drawn to this as well because the, the victim's identity is so unclear and we can substitute ourselves into that identity in some ways. Some scholars have posited that the victim's an Israelite from Judea. Others have said, no, his identity is not important for how the narrative works. Charles Hedrick, who's done a lot of work on parables, actually shows pretty startlingly that the reading of the Greek meaning of traveler for the beaten person finally helped by the Samaritan, in that reading, we can't even be certain that the wounded traveler is male. That was kind of a revelation to me. So the person's anonymity, Hedrick goes on to say, is surprising in a story that uses such specific societal markers for some of its characters. But then right in the middle is this sort of cipher, right? It's a crucial point. I think, for Joyce's narrative purposes in instantiating first Stephen as victim, then Bloom, and then by extension, first Bloom as Samaritan, and then us. As Bloom slides, as it were, into the gap of victim vacated by Stephen, we fill his former role, but with a twist. We may wonder how we can help, and we may listen and read empathetically, but how can we literally help Bloom? We can't. But the larger burden Joyce is placing on the reader should be obvious by now, anyone can be a victim, male, female, from any tribe or nation. But I don't think the reverse is true. Correspondingly, not anyone can be a Samaritan. Human nature, selfishness, self-preservation may hold us back. But everyone listening to or reading Jesus' parable, and now by reading Bloom's interaction with Stephen through it, is a potential Samaritan. Hedrick suggests this. It's easier for any reader to identify with a wounded traveler beside the road because this figure lacks social markers of any sort. The first traveler was both nobody and everybody. And thus, taking the anonymity of the first traveler, that's another name for the, the stranger um, who's beaten, seriously turns the narrative into a story about human concern for a fellow human being of whatever nationality. By extension, rather than acting like Joyce's citizen, this hyperbolic nationalist, we have the chance, conditioned by Bloom's extravagant acts of generosity throughout the novel, to act like neighbors to anonymous others we may meet in the course of our daily rounds. And yet, as Hedrick reminds us, the benevolence of the fourth man, the Samaritan, is so outlandish as to challenge any compromise that readers may have made between their own acts of kindness or charity and the human need that always exists on every side. Few would ever claim to have been the Samaritan as he's portrayed in this narrative. Thus Ulysses and its retelling of the Good Samaritan parable through Blooms and Stevens, and now our changing role in narrative, finally lead us to realize that the great, there's a great gap between our desire to be more like the Bloom, be more like Bloom and the petty concerns that hold us back. So there's a huge gap there. June 16th, 1904, the setting of the novel, The Day Of, stands as a day holding out a radiant, shimmering possibility for us to act like neighbors, not citizens, not that character. So finally, to read Ulysses, last paragraph, parabolically, is to both come to tentative conclusions and realize, just as with parables, they have endings, but not final resolutions, because the endings raise new complications for careful readers, which in turn require further resolution. As Frank Kermode argued in a still wonderful critical book, The Sense of an Ending, about any work of fiction, those that continue to interest us in the work continue to move through time to an end. An end we must sense even if we cannot know it. They live and change until, which is never, as and is are one. I'm just gonna repeat that part of it. They move through time to an end and they live and change until, which is never, as and is are one. Thus, readers troubled by the seeming lack of development of relationship between Stephen and Bloom, what do they expect? 
in the course of an hour, a few hours anyway, fireworks, right? These readers, all of us, can take comfort in realizing that the parabolic structure of the novel, the rescue of the familiar stranger Stephen by the man from another tribe, settles not for answers, but asks us finally what we would do in such situations, which continue after the novel ends. That is, rather than complaining about Bloom and Stephen's relationship, we might ask ourselves, what's my relationship to them? And would I have helped Stephen if I were in Bloom's situation? Would I in the future, when I read the novel again, when I'm just thinking about it? Through its iterations of the Good Samaritan parable, Ulysses awakens what Derek Attridge argues is our responsibility to the other. This is what he says. The other is also vulnerable in need of my protection, destitute, to use Levinas's word. Literature, for all the force of which it's capable of exercising, can achieve nothing without readers, responsible readers. Thank you.